It can't all be fresh seafood straight out of the water, even in Alaska. Sometimes it just works out that you're buying some shrimp from a grocery store freezer. That doesn't mean it has to be boring, though. Today, we're talking about America's favorite seafood, frozen shrimp. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. In 2015, the British newspaper The Guardian published a series of articles about slavery in the Thai shrimp industry. Many of the black tiger shrimp in Western supermarket freezers come from Thailand. The supply chain is long and murky. American and European distributors buy from wholesalers in Thailand, and where those wholesalers get their product from is not a topic that anyone cared to look into. The black tiger shrimp, a native of the Indian and Western Pacific Oceans, is extensively farmed throughout Southeast Asia and the Indonesian archipelago. From there, it is distributed worldwide. If you've eaten shrimp in the last 20 years, you've eaten black tiger shrimp. It's very cheap, particularly for seafood, and its mild shrimp flavor is popular with just about everyone. The texture is softer than other species of shrimp, and it's not very heavily used by the high-end restaurant market, but... The high-end restaurant market barely matters in the global food business. It's easy to raise in saltwater ponds and it grows very quickly, so farmers can keep a steady supply of them year-round. There are challenges in shrimp production, whether the shrimp is farmed or wild. Shrimp heads contain enzymes that rapidly break down their flesh after the shrimp dies. You can freeze them quickly to stop this process, but that requires local access to flash freezers, which is partly why frozen head-on shrimp is not common. You can cook them immediately, and some percent of shrimp is processed this way, but the simplest way of handling this is to simply head the shrimp right after harvest. After that, you have three choices. One is simply to sell the headless shrimp in the shell. This is the easiest and the least labor-intensive way, but it also fetches the lowest price. And consumers will pay more for a product that someone else has already prepped. So much of the shrimp that is sold is either peeled or peeled and deveined. Much less work and mess in the kitchen, worth a little bit more to the farmer or processor. The work still has to be done, of course. There are machines that can do it. Machines are expensive, though. They require maintenance. They require parts. They require people around who know how to take care of them. Machines are only really worth investing in from a financial point of view if you don't have a limitless supply of cheap or free labor to do the work for you. In Thailand, the Guardian found, they do. 
Thailand shares a long border with Myanmar, and the government of Myanmar has for quite some time been persecuting an ethnic group within its borders called the Rohingya. Hundreds of thousands of Rohingya have fled the country, many into and through Thailand. Where there are refugees, there are people seeking ways to exploit them. And it is these Rohingya that The Guardian found made up a large percentage of workers in shrimp processing plants. Many of the rest were ethnic Burmese lured across the border by the promise of steady work. Once they got there, they were crammed into tiny rooms and forced to work 16-hour days for a couple of dollars a day. They were beaten if they tried to leave and beaten if they didn't peel shrimp fast enough. They worked through vomiting, they worked through pregnancy, they worked through diarrhea, they worked until they died or escaped. Of course, the children worked too. But the shrimp got peeled. Shrimp are carnivores. They're fed fish meal on the farm. And somebody has to catch the fish for the fish meal, and that is done in the ocean. It's one of the less talked about sides of aquaculture that so much of it relies on wild-caught fish with little to no value as human food. Trash fish is what it's usually called. And the biggest fish meal company in Thailand, The Guardian found, was buying its trash fish from boats crewed by slaves. Not merely forced labor at terrible wages, as in the peeling sheds, but men who had been bought and sold, and could be bought and sold again at any time, and who worked for nothing. They're already paying as little as possible for the shrimp that feeds humans. There's even more of a downward pressure on price for the fish that feed those shrimp. You can't buy it cheap enough, so slavery was the solution. And boat owners who got tired of fishing for very little money could always turn to the more lucrative work of trafficking slaves up and down the coast. Of course, the Guardian's 2015 report caused great outcry among the Western distributors of shrimp who let everyone know that they had no idea about any of this and declared that they were going to immediately take steps to remedy the situation. When the Guardian returned in 2018, they found conditions much the same, except that there was now a full schedule of meetings in hotel conference rooms devoted to talking about the problem. Most of the talk about seafood for the last 20 years has revolved around sustainability. The famous Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, which grades fisheries around the world based on environmental impact and regulatory structure, recommends consumers avoid, for instance, the very popular Patagonian red shrimp from Argentina due to largely unregulated bottom trawling. It still lists farmed black tiger shrimp from Thailand as a good alternative. But in the last year, the aquarium has partnered with other organizations to create the Seafood Slavery Risk Tool, which aims to document the labor conditions under which seafood is produced. According to it, forced labor and slavery is not confined to developing nations. Cases of forced migrant labor have been found in the Japanese tuna fishery and on British scallopers. Global food supply chains are vast, and there's no incentive for individuals or companies to pry too deeply into them. If you've eaten shrimp in the last 20 years, you've probably eaten food produced through slave labor. There isn't a consumer-level solution to the problem either. You can purchase wild-caught U.S. shrimp, which is great for you and great for the fishermen, but it doesn't make the market for cheap tiger shrimp go away. So the first dish we're going to make today with shrimp is a stone-cold New Orleans classic called barbecue shrimp. And the reason that it's called barbecue shrimp is not known to me. 
And as far as I know, there is nobody that knows why this particular dish is called barbecue shrimp. It's got nothing to do with barbecue. It's got nothing to do with smoke. It is not remotely anything like the rest of what we would consider barbecue in the rest of the South. It's got nothing to do with ribs. It's got nothing to do with brisket. It's got nothing to do with pulled pork. It's got nothing to do with sausage. What it is, is shrimp cooked in basically a broken butter sauce. And a broken butter sauce is different from something like a hollandaise, where the goal is to have an emulsified sauce that's smooth. In a broken butter sauce, you let the sauce break. You actually don't care that it's not emulsified, that it's not thick and uh, smooth. It is definitely a layer of <laughs> a layer of butter and then whatever else you've mixed into it and it's totally fine that way. Um, the most famous broken butter sauce is called sauce Meunier, which is the sauce in dishes that are called Amandine, which they usually, you know, there's green beans, Amandine's a real famous one, trout Amandine. I make Amandine a lot with cod. It's really delicious. Uh, rockfish is good that way too. And it's just a, a sauce that you literally cook the butter till it just starts to brown a little bit add a little bit of wine or lemon juice and you leave it you leave it broken you don't try to incorporate it into the sauce like you would with like a bur blanc so you get a different flavor it's a lot more sort of buttery and fatty tasting than the the emulsified butter sauces it's just a different texture but this one is uh Mostly butter. <laughs> There's a lot of butter in it. So I'm going to do it under the broiler. It's an awesome dish uh, for a lot of reasons. One is that it's delicious. I mean, you really can just stop there and, and you're fine. But and one nice thing about it is it scales up and down really easily. If you got a whole a big whole mess of shrimp, it's really easy to make a huge batch of this stuff. If you just have a handful, if you got, you know, 10 shrimp, it's really easy to make a really small amount. The proportions and the recipes are kind of up to you. It is a very, it's very basic and I'm just gonna walk you through it because it's not any sort of a big production to make. It's the kind of thing you can just throw it together from pretty much stuff that almost everybody will have laying around. It doesn't require any complicated techniques. It just requires some butter and some shrimp and some other stuff and we'll get to that now. So this shrimp, this is a uh, wild caught U.S. shrimp. I believe this is white shrimp. I think it's from the Gulf of Mexico, but I'm, I don't have the bag around. This dish works perfectly well with spots. It works great with side stripes or any of the Alaska shrimp. This is also, I, I've made this dish with scallops a lot, and it's really good with scallops. And it is interestingly, this is one of the few uh, South Louisiana dishes that I have found that works with salmon really well. Salmon doesn't go very well with a lot of Louisiana cooking, and I finally, I figured it out one day, and it's because the green bell peppers, something about the way the green bell peppers and the salmon, their flavors intermingle, and it's just, it just does not work. But salmon does great in this dish because there is no bell pepper. It's one of the, it was one of the dishes that doesn't use the whole trinity. Um, it usually uses onions. Well, it always uses onions and uh, typically celery too. I don't have any celery today. I forgot to get some but it's not a critical ingredient in this dish, although I like it better if it does have celery. So the first thing I did is I, uh, with my shrimp is I shelled them all. I always shell all the shrimp first, just thaw them all out, shell them, throw the shells into a pot with some water on it, and you make a little shrimp stock. It doesn't take very long. Um, shrimp stock does not take, you know, hours to cook. I usually let it boil for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever, and then just let them steep in there. Unfortunately, Due to the world not being as awesome as it possibly could be, it's really hard to get head-on shrimp unless you can get them fresh in in the U.S. because almost all our shrimp are, are sold headed. And there's a lot of shrimp flavor in the in in the heads. In fact, most of the flavors in the heads, particularly for making like a shrimp stock. 
And it's always a nice thing, even if you're just making a really simple, um, like a shrimp stir fry, if you just add a little dash of this shrimp stock into it, it'll always boost the, the shrimpiness, you know, the shrimp flavor a little bit. And the last thing I did to these shrimp is I, uh, I deveined them. It doesn't take long unless you have, I mean, if you have a ton of them, then it obviously it takes a little while. And I'm gonna fire up the broiler. There's several different ways you can make this dish. You can make the sauce, you can poach the shrimp in the sauce just on the stovetop, that'll work good. You can, if particularly if you have a big batch, you can make the sauce and then pour it over all the shrimp in like a baking dish or something. Shove that in the, in the oven at a pretty hot temp. I would go, you know, at least 425, 450 and cook it that way. That's if you've got a, a whole lot of them. Or you can broil them. And I'm going to broil them so I get it. So I'm going to wind up getting a little bit of some nice char, little crispy bits on the outside. One last thing to say about the shrimp. So I've tossed them in with a little salt and a little trick that I picked up from, it's fairly common in Chinese stir fry. They'll often add a little bit of baking soda to whatever marinade they're using. And the baking soda helps give the shrimp uh, kind of that crisp texture where it's not, it's not rubbery, you know, like overcooked shrimp where it's kind of chewy to go through it, but it's also not mushy and soft. Like sometimes frozen shrimp have a tendency to be not that strong a texture, not that firm. If you put a little baking soda or another alkaline ingredient, it just so happens that baking soda is the most common alkaline that we use in the kitchen, then it gives it that snap almost. When you bite into the shrimp, it bites cleanly and it bites with a nice, it's got a nice resistance to, the, to your teeth. So I always, 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 always now marinate my shrimp in just a little bit of salt and a little bit of baking soda. This is, I've probably got 10 shrimp here. I think I used less than a quarter teaspoon of baking soda. So you're really not using very much. That was my saute pan. I just have a cast iron pan. Since I'm doing this under the broiler, it's just gotta be a pan that can go under the broiler. So enameled cast iron is good to go. Chopping some garlic. I got four cloves of garlic here. And a nice, generous amount of butter. This is about four tablespoons of butter. While that is melting, I'm gonna get the rest of my ingredients together. So I chopped about half an onion. I'm gonna saute the onion in the butter, and then after the onion sweats out a little bit and becomes translucent, I will add the garlic. And then I've got some spices and some Tabasco and some Worcestershire sauce and some wine and some lemon and all kind of stuff. All right, that is the longest part of this whole ordeal. Saute in the onions. You don't have to go for a long time on them either. You don't want them to get too sweet. You still want them to have a really nice savory onion characteristic. So I just added the garlic. And again, that was about four good sized cloves of garlic. This dish should be pretty aggressive. It should be pretty in your face. Don't eat it on a first date, or do. And if the other person likes it as well, you could be a natural match. Got some Worcestershire sauce. Be generous with it. The secret to this dish is generosity with the spices. Okay, here's a little Tabasco. Give it a few shots of that, because I like heat, personally. I got a little white wine. Gonna add a pinch of my shrimp stock. Not very much, just quarter cup or so tops. All right, I got a lemon here. I'm gonna cut that in half, but I'm gonna add the lemon when I add the shrimp. Actually, I'm not even gonna cut it in half. I'm gonna cut it into slices. The lemon goes in under the broiler, comes out looking all nice and pretty. If you're following along in your own kitchen, you're gonna notice that this sauce is still pretty pale, and it's not supposed to be pale. 
I'm going to add a little pinch of mustard. Not very much, just a half a tablespoon, something like that. I don't want this to taste like mustard, but I like a little mustard bite. This dish is looking pretty yellow. It is not supposed to be yellow. Well, we have two secrets to making dishes not yellow. One is paprika and one is cayenne. So I'm going to add a generous amount of paprika because I like paprika. Paprika gives it a nice sort of background, delicious sort of sweet pepper flavor. And now I'm going to add the cayenne and I'm going to be generous with the cayenne too because I like cayenne. That's probably, that was two good sized pinches. I might even add more, but you do always want to be a little careful. And it's always easy to add heat, and it's always hard, as we know, to take it away. I'm going to have a bottle of Louisiana hot sauce on the table, too, when it's time to eat this. And I will definitely be adding some. The purists might say, hey, this is a New Orleans dish. You should have crystal. But I am a Louisiana man through and through. Now I'm going to kill the heat on that. I'm going to add my shrimp, scatter them around a little. I'm gonna squeeze one of my lemon slices in here and then just throw the others in the spaces between the shrimp and we can go in the broiler. And for my last trick, the eternal accompaniments to New Orleans cooking, parsley and green onions. I mix them up, cut my green onions on the bias at an angle, chop my parsley, not super fine, but kind of a rustic chop. I'll leave some stems in there, stems are good. And the essential accompaniment to this, if you serve this without bread, you will be so sad because long after the shrimp are gone, the juices will sit there in the pan or in the serving dish or whatever, and you will be sopping them up with bread. Bread and this sauce are heavenly together. Just like that, my kitchen smells fantastic. Throwing in a bunch of the herbs, throw in a bunch of them. This is not garnish. These are integral flavor components. This is not the mediocre sprig of parsley thrown on something to give it a, quote, pop of color. This is part of the dish. Freshens everything up. It makes everything delicious. That is a quick grind of pepper. And because I have some, a little bit of fleur de sel. I'm not even going to transfer this to a serving dish. I am just going to eat this out of the pan with a few splashes of Louisiana hot sauce. You should be jealous right now. Our second uh, shrimp dish today will be something that is very old-fashioned, something that really doesn't get made much anymore. And in fact, it's related to a kind of category of food that these days is sort of a joke. We're going to be making potted shrimp. And this particular technique, it was a really, really common English method of preserving food for the short and medium term. And this particular uh, specific technique, I am deriving from the great English food writer, Elizabeth David, who is just awesome. It's a real simple dish. It is designed as a way to preserve seafood most of the time, although they also potted meats were also very common. And you can still get those today, you know, the <laughs> stuff that everybody makes fun of, the deviled ham spread and things like that. Well, what in the U.S. has kind of become sort of a joke in some other cuisines, it's still something that is kind of considered a legitimate food. You know, we've talked about riettes on the show, which are basically a French version of the same thing. And in Britain, they have the various potted meats. 
particularly in the days before refrigeration, this was, you know, when you got a big mess of seafood, you know, if you got a big delivery of shrimp or whatever, like you might have a lot of it that day. It might be too much for you to eat that day, but you wanted to make it last, you know, at least a few weeks. And in the days before refrigeration or reliable refrigeration, that could be a real challenge. Fish and visitors stink after three days. So this was a method to prolong the catch. It's not designed to be a long-term storage method. This isn't something you're doing necessarily to put food up over the winter, although it's related to some food preservation techniques that are intended for that, like confit, which is sort of a version of the same thing, is designed to keep food for a long time. This is just designed to get you a few more meals out of, you know, one batch of fish or one batch of shrimp or one batch of crab or one batch of lobsters or whatever. So it works really, really well. You know, you can cut up like the tail pieces, the offcuts of your, your halibut, say, when you've got a whole big fish. It's like, what's the point of freezing the, the little skinny tail bits? You don't really want those as like a full filet but at the same time, you got to do something with them. It's ready-made food um, that is easy to prepare, that's easy to access when you're hungry. And so we're going to make this potted shrimp today. Keep in mind, you can do this with anything. Scallops. It might be a little weird with oysters. <laughs> um, the basic procedure is to take the raw seafood, take some clarified butter, mix the seafood with whatever you want to mix it with, flavoring-wise, put it into jars, pour the butter over the jars, and then poach it in a water bath until it's done, basically. Then you let it cool, and once it's cool, you pour a little bit of clarified butter over the top, and that seals it from oxygen, which is the main thing that is gonna, you know, that's gonna make it spoil. Again, this isn't like a long-term preservation technique, but this is the kind of thing that if you keep it in a cool place, you can definitely get two or three weeks out of it sitting there, as long as it's not broken. Once you break the seal, you need to eat it, you know, within three or four days, but it'll keep in a refrigerator with the seal intact for quite a while. It's nice because it keeps stuff out of the freezer where it's never quite as good, and when something's in the freezer, it still means that you have to deal with it when, when the time comes to cook it. So it's good for taking the sort of overflow of summer's bounty, and this is a nice thing to do with any kind of leftover seafood. So let's do it, it's real simple. For the amount that I have, I have two jars here, and they are both, one's a mason jam jar and one's a jam jar from a commercial jam. You can use ramekins, you can use any any sort of jar, any anything you want, really. It doesn't even have to be in a, in a small jar like this. You can do it in like a bigger bowl. But like I say, once you break the seal on the outside, you wanna eat everything inside of it pretty quickly. So generally, the smaller, the better. The little half pint mason jars are a really good size for this kind of thing. Those in, those in jam jars are basically the, the pots of choice for the potted shrimp. And I have my shrimp here. I've just marinated it in just a little bit of salt, not very much. In this case, I've foregone the baking soda. I typically only do that if I'm if I'm doing a, a, a hot and fast sort of dish. This is gonna be a little bit of a slower poach. I've also clarified a couple sticks of butter. I've got a little leftover ghee, so I'm going to use the ghee as the main butter. And then I've clarified a little more to put on the top when I'm done, or if I need a little extra butter. Um, so it poaches in, in the butter, and that is the main cooking method. And then you take it out, and you pour the fresh clarified butter over the top of it, and that preserves what's inside of it. I'm going to keep the seasonings fairly straightforward here with a little bit of pepper and a little lemon zest, just to give it a nice bright flavor. It's the middle of winter, so 
It's always nice to have a little lemon. And I am looking at the spice rack. And I still have a little, I have a little of this red Aleppo pepper. I'm gonna add that, just a little bit. You can use red pepper flakes for the same purpose. Um, they're, it's a little nicer than cayenne because cayenne is just heat. Whereas uh, a lot of the, you know, specific flavor or the specific pepper types, uh, they'll often bring like some of the fruity pepper aromas to go with it. So it's more than just like, just heat in the flavor mix. I have some parsley and a green onion out and I'm gonna add those in here. I gotta chop them first. And they will just give a few more flavors to the butter. The fat soluble flavors in them will dissolve into the fat as this thing poaches and it'll just subtly flavor the shrimp a little more. And now I'm gonna start some water boiling just a little bit because I'm gonna cook these in a water bath uh, just to make it nice and gentle. So I've got my oven going at 350 and I've got a little water on the boil. So I'm gonna go ahead and pack these in the, in the jars, in the pots. And you wanna pack them fairly tight. And I'm going to, so as I'm packing, I've got my ghee melted here. And I'm just gonna add a little bit of ghee and sort of mush it down because what I wanna do is eliminate all the air pockets because the air is what's gonna, is what I'm trying to keep out. The air is what will make my final, my cooked food spoil at the end. So I wanna get rid of all that. So I just put a layer of shrimp, add a little bit of ghee, and then sort of knock it around a little bit, pat on it, try to press any air bubbles out, fill all the air with the ghee, or fill all the, all the spaces in the pot need to be either ghee or clarified butter or shrimp, nothing else, no air. And now I just take a, a butter knife and I'm gonna run that down the sides and kind of peel towards the inside. And that will, if there's any air pockets down at the bottom that I'm not quite getting out, that will help to uh, eliminate those. So that's one. And now I got my other one, same thing. Drop my shrimp in and cover them. Plenty of the ghee. And it doesn't have to be ghee, it can just be regular clarified butter. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily make a batch of ghee just to do this, but I happen to have some around, and so I'm going to use it, because that's what we do. We use what we got. And I'm going to set these two jars into a pan that's gonna go into the oven, and I'm leaving them uncovered. Um, and the reason that we're doing that is because one of the things that we do wanna do here is we wanna evaporate some of the water because water is moisture inside of the food is something that will uh, encourage bacteria growth. If we cover them, then we'll get a gentler poach, but we leave a lot more water in the food. So we're gonna leave them uncovered so that any of the, the free water in there can evaporate and it leaves us with just a beautifully textured final product. Bacteria can only operate on free water. There's a, uh, starting to boil. There's a concept in food safety called water activity that measures the amount of free water that's available for bacteria to use. And that's why you can have something like say, duck confit, where the duck itself is very moist and, and has a lot of, it, it's not dried out, but because most of the water that's still in it is bound in the duck flesh. 
and all and a lot of the free water has been cooked off and that is that free water is what the bacteria need to survive so if you lower the water activity it makes it much more difficult for bacteria to survive and that's one of the preservation techniques that that takes place in this style of preservation okay they're in their water bath i've put them in there and really i'm just going to let them cook for it's going to take them probably an hour maybe an hour and a half to uh to fully cook all the way through for some of the water to be driven off. And then I'll pull them out, let them cool down sufficiently. Once they, they don't need to cool down very much before you put the layer of clarified butter on top. They just need to kind of not be quite so hot. So we'll let them cool down a little bit, pour the clarified butter on top, throw them in the fridge to chill. And tomorrow they'll be ready to eat. All I gotta do to eat them is pull them out of the fridge let them warm up just a little bit to room temperature, and then you can reach down and fish around and grab yourself a shrimp and pull it out, throw it in your mouth and eat it. Or put it on some bread or do something civilized with it. Or you can melt out the butter, strain out the butter, throw the shrimp, you know, in a salad or something like that. There's all sorts of things you can do with them once they're, once they're potted. Potted shrimp is uh, it's a real classic, and it's something that deserves to come back. So let's bring it back. And for our final trick today, we're going to be making one of those things that I'm always, I'm always talking about because I got some enthusiasm about them. And I think they're a kind of food stuff that, that we could use more of because they're such a, such a social food stuff. I am going to be making... Today, with some shrimp, I'm going to be making a terrine. And yes, I make these a lot on the show, because I like them. I'm enthusiastic about them. I wish that we lived in a world where they're easy to find, easy to get, where you could just show up at somebody's house, and they'd put out a little terrine, and you'd have a little bite of it, and then you'd go on your way, feeling a little satisfied, a little happy. Or, you know, you could go to a restaurant, or... At lunch, have a terrine and a green salad, call it good, go about your merry way. Less heavy than a sandwich, you know, you don't always want a sandwich or something like that. Sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. Chopping some ginger right now for this terrine because I also hope to demonstrate today that these things, just because they're sort of French-derived, European-derived, that doesn't mean that you have to stay within that one narrow range of flavors. You can go anywhere with them. Today, I'm going to make a shrimp terrine with some flavors that are most strongly associated in our mind with China. And what I'm chopping right now is ginger, and I'm about to chop some garlic as well. Peel a little here. And I am a garlic peeler by the smash method. I got a whole bag of wild caught. For something like this, I went ahead and bought the stuff that's already peeled. Again, U.S. shrimp, Gulf of Mexico, I believe. I was hoping I would time this with the uh, with the shrimp guy that comes down, but sadly I missed it. And I might as well, since I have it out, I might as well chop my green onions. These are, in a lot of ways, garlic, ginger, and green onions are, in, in some ways, like the, the holy trinity of a lot of Chinese regional cooking because they show up repeatedly in many, many dishes. The mirepoix of China, if you will. And in this case, I'm gonna mince these fairly fine. They're not gonna go into my mixture of my terrine. They are going to be used in the garnish. 
First, I'm gonna mince these pretty fine, and I'm going to use the whites and the greens, because I want a pretty heavy green onion flavor. When the snow melts, whenever that will happen, I am hoping that I have some nice perennial bunching onions growing in my garden, because I planted some last year, but you never know the first year. You never know if they're gonna take. So that is the garlic and the green onions minced. I'm going to sweat the garlic and the ginger in a little bit of butter. And you're probably going to think, oh, what are you using butter for? It's, that's not really, it's not a Chinese flavor. Well, that's true. It is a French-derived dish, so I feel pretty comfortable using butter in it. It's also going to get some cream, too, which is not another not very common Asian ingredient or Chinese regional ingredient. And I have several ramekins out. Uh, you got a lot of options for what sort of container you can put these things in. But today I'm gonna put them in ramekins. So I'm greasing the ramekins well because I would like to unmold them later. Okay, a couple more. So I got about a pound of, uh, I got a pound of shrimp here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight terrines. So I bet that will be plenty. And if you remember a while back, I think it was the juniper episode, we did a salmon mousseline and made sausage out of it. That's actually a very, very similar technique to what we're about to do right now. The original uh, fish terrines, if you look at older cookbooks, before like the 1970s, 1960s, 1970s was when this shift sort of happened. Older terrines, older seafood terrines tended to be made out of a panade, which is a bread and cream mixture. It makes for a firmer terrine that is also a lot heavier. Um, you know, that's one, that's one thing, thing that's definitely kind of the case about uh, bread flour or bread in general is that it is pretty filling. And so the, the older terrines were, were heavier. They were a little starchy, a little bit stodgy in texture. And so, and it's kind of like the same, it was right around the same time that the, the same transition happened in sauce making where sauces began to move away from starch-based roux and became based a lot more on either emulsified egg yolk sauces or uh, cream-based sauces that had a lighter texture and weren't so stodgy. Not that all roux-based sauces are stodgy, but they can be. Okay, so I got those guys done. And the last thing I'm going to do, because really this won't take very long to assemble once it's time to get these guys ready, I'm grabbing my my trusty mortar and pestle and a skillet. All right, I've got the five spices of five spice. And this is something of a misnomer, really, uh, in my understanding. These are not necessarily always the ingredients in five spice. In fact, there are often more or less spices than five, from my understanding. And they are not always these, although these are very common. And in the Western world, when we, when we think of five spice, powder. It is almost always some combination of these five spices. And they are cloves, star anise, white peppercorns, cinnamon, and Sichuan pepper. And I got my skillet hot, so I'm just going to toast these. These are all whole spices, except for my cinnamon. My cinnamon is ground. Just a few seconds of toasting, just until the aroma starts to hit your nose. Now, I do want to grind these into a pretty fine powder. These are going into a smooth medium, so I don't want big chunks of spices to distract. I don't want them to be gritty. So I'm going to spend a little time at this stage 
grinding them down. And then I'm also going to sift it through a fine mesh strainer. So I just ground all the whole spices. My cinnamon is uh, already ground, so I'm gonna go ahead and add that. All right, I got quite a bit of very finely powdered five spice now. And we are getting close to being able to do our puree. So I have dumped my bag of a beautifully frozen USA wild caught, whichever count this was, I can't remember. Um, always remember when, when you're buying shrimp, the larger the count number, the bigger the shrimp. So these are, I think these are like 60 to 70 count, which means there's 60 to 70 shrimp per pound. I gotta get two other things. I gotta get some cream and I gotta get some egg. The final thing I've got, which maybe you're sick of me saying it and maybe you're not, is a scale, digital scale. I need, for this amount, this is one pound, so 454 grams of shrimp. I'm going to use roughly half as much cream, slightly less than half as much. You don't wanna use quite half. So 200 grams will be just fine. And we'll go two eggs. Not even gonna bother to stir these eggs up because these are gonna get dumped into the food processor. Um, if you remember the juniper episode where we made the salmon mousseline, the mousseline ratio is two parts of the, the seafood to one part of the cream to one egg per 500 grams of the total mixture. So this gets a little bit more egg and a little bit less cream. And the reason that we do that is because eggs make things tighter. Eggs bind things harder. Eggs are what are gonna help this because uh, the connective tissue and the resulting gelatin in fish, it's not even gelatin, it's called isinglass. They, it, if you've ever made homebrewed wine, it's frequently used to filter that. And it's, it's like the fish gelatin, basically. But it doesn't set up as hard as regular gelatin, and fish doesn't contain myosin the way that uh, meat does, which is a really, really tight binder. So meat, you can make a meat terrine that is very tight and very firm without needing extra binders. Um, you can use them. Actually, in meat, eggs tend to sort of lighten the texture a little bit, actually ironically enough. Like in meatloaf, you know, a meatloaf and a terrine are extremely close relatives. They're basically first cousins, except the, the main difference is being that a meatloaf is usually served hot, although cold meatloaf sandwiches, I think we all know, are delicious. But meatloaf has a different texture. It's a lot tenderer, and you're not, you're not aiming for the kind of firm texture that we're going for in these. And it's kind of the same thing with a mousseline, um, that with the sausage. You don't want that to be a firm texture. You want there to be a lot of give in that, you know, so when you bite into it, it's not super, super snappy. And mousseline is often poached as well. And for that, it's kind of the same thing. You want it to be very light, very yielding when you bite into it. But for a terrine like this, and you can use this same mixture to make uh, uh, canals, which is what you do when, or fish balls, take the mixture and you make a little ball out of it and you poach it. You can totally use this mixture for that. It's just gonna be quite, it, it's gonna be a little firmer than is kind of ideal. We're taking that same mixture and just by backing off a little on the cream and upping the eggs just a little bit, not a lot, we're gonna make it a little bit firmer. And this is a fairly common thing uh, in a lot of Asian meatball and fishball recipes will use eggs for the same purpose because they, they want a bit of a springier texture to their, to their meatballs, which here, um, usually in the West, we tend to go for a, a more of a loose texture, something that'll fall apart a little easier. 
making uh, the terrine mixture here, it's, it's just like making sausage. You want to keep everything cold. In fact, uh, I dumped this whole bag into the food processor maybe an hour ago, and every now and then I give it a spin. And so it's still fairly frozen on the inside, and that'll change because now I'm going to puree it for quite a bit until I get a nice, smooth, homogenous mixture. So this will take a minute, and I'm not going to add the ginger yet. I'm just going to start with the cream and the eggs, and I'm also going to go ahead and add my salt right now. And for these terrines, for a meat terrine, I would typically go 2.5% salt, but for a seafood terrine, you want to dial it back a little bit because seafood typically is kind of inherently salty already. There's already like a little, a little higher salt content. Uh, let's see. Let's do my math here. So 200 plus 454, 654, and the eggs are $50 a piece, so that's 754. So 1% of that is 7.5 grams, and I want 2%, so 15 15 grams. And that is why we use metric. Even I can do math when it's in the metric system. Okay, now it's a pretty homogenous mixture. Um, I'm going to keep pureeing it a little bit because I still have to puree the ginger in it and the spices in it. And a little bit. It's just not a terrine if there's not a little bit of booze in it. So I'm going to carry on with the Chinese flavorings and go with a little Shaozing wine. Let it puree a little bit longer. So the texture right now is kind of at like really soft peak uh, whipped cream. Only it's, it's definitely thicker. And at this point, I do have a couple of options. There's a couple things I could do if I wanted to. One is I could run it through a drum sieve, which I talk about a lot. And that's an extra layer of refinement that would be awesome. Um, and that is what you do if you want it to be perfectly, perfectly smooth. And it will be perfectly smooth if you do it that way. It is an extra layer of refinement. It is excellent. It's not necessary though. One of the nice things about terrines, as I say frequently, is that you can you can go up the up and down the scale really easily of how refined you want these things to be. I'm gonna fill my prepared ramekins about roughly a halfway full or so. I'll make sure I have enough left over to fill everything. That is six of them. I'm gonna stop at six right now. I might have enough to do a couple more, but we'll see. And with each one, I'm just gonna take it, give it a few sharp wraps on the on the counter. And the, the goal here is if there is any, if there's any air bubbles, I'm eliminating them. This is standard practice in terrine making. So now, it's time to make the garnish. This will be a nice little thing that will go inside of my terrines. So I gotta spend a little time doing this to make them so that when you cut into them, you'll see this really nice layer on the inside. And I'm just taking a little dash of the green onion and making sort of a little rough circle on the inside. I'm leaving a border around the outside because I want the outside to be completely covered with my, my shrimp paste. And then I want the inside to have this green onion layer. And if any green onions fall to the outside, I bring them right back in. Kind of pat down, mash them into the paste just a little bit. This is the part where you can let your freak flag fly in doing the garnish like this. You can you can slide things around the outside of the ramekin so that when you if you unmold it, then you have a little like crown roast of say asparagus on the outside, 
and uh, and your terrine in the middle. You can do different lay layers of different kinds of the terrine mixture. Say you did a layer of shrimp, and then you did a layer made with, say, pink salmon. So you had a, a white layer and a, and a pink layer, and you could alternate those however many times you had patience for. The nice thing about these is they are, they are a blank slate. You can do just about anything you want with them. And so I am going to continue my frequent theme on this show of using things that I made in previous shows. I still have a little bit of the locks that I'm that we made in the smoked salmon school in Kodiak. I think this is my last package that I have in the freezer. And I'm going to trim it. I'm going to trim it just a little bit to make it kind of roughly circular in shape, sort of an <laughs> sort of elliptical, just so that it fits inside the ramekin in about the same diameter that the green onions are. So it's still surrounded by a nice layer of the shrimp. I'm gonna do one for each one. Now I haven't used all my green onions yet. And there is a reason for that. But let me get through these first. So we're just, just cutting them so they fit. And these are fairly thin slices. They could be a little thinner, but this is what the slicing machine at the Sea Grant factory is capable of. Definitely no match for an old expert with a knife, but it'll do. Machines never are matches for old experts with knives. Trouble is, old experts with knives should cost money. More money than many people are willing or able to pay. Trim, 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 trim. Okay, now I'm gonna take my reserved green onions and I'm just gonna drop them on top of the little pieces of locks in the middle so that in theory, once these guys all come out of their water bath, then in theory, when you cut into them, you will get a layer of the white shrimp paste, you'll get a layer of the green onion, you'll get a layer of the red salmon, and then you'll get one more layer of the green onion, and then it'll be topped with yet another layer of the shrimp. So it should be a very attractive dish in the end, because what I'm planning on doing with these is I'm gonna unmold them at the end, after I unmold them, then I can cut them into fourths or thirds and have those sitting out so that people can just help themselves to a chunk of the terrine. It should be very pretty on the plate or on the serving dish, and it should make people want to eat, which after all is the actual purpose of, pres of presentation, not merely to encourage Instagram pictures. In fact, I would argue not mostly. <laughs> And now I don't want to, I want to be a little gentle now because I don't want to disturb my second green onion layer too much. So I'm just going to kind of plop. It's almost like the crumb layer in a cake where you're sort of gentle with the first, with the first little bit of, uh, of frosting so that then you can come back over the top and be less worried about getting crumbs in your final coat. So now that I have most of that done, now I can finish. Oh, six is going to be perfect. And I just spread it out over the top, getting an even coverage. Now we've got them all filled, and we're just gonna go over the top of them all and smooth them out. They don't have to be perfectly smooth because in this case, at least these don't, because in this case, the bottoms here are going to be the tops, and the tops will be perfectly smooth. But go ahead and I'm gonna smooth them out as best I can. Pat it down, bust out any last air pockets that may be in there. So they're all in their little snug ramekin homes. We'll go ahead and tap them all down. You can be kind of aggressive with it. Now we gotta start prepping to get these guys in the oven. Okay. 
Okay, and I need to get some water boiling because like the potted shrimp, like the potted shrimp, we're gonna be doing these in a water bath. However, unlike the potted shrimp, these will be covered. So I have, I have six pieces of aluminum foil here and I'm going to cover every ramekin completely. I do not want steam escaping. I want this any moisture to stay inside, but I'm also gonna uncover them as soon as they come out of the oven. And one little nicety that you should do is to take the time to oil, or butter in this case, your aluminum foil over the spot where you're going to cover your terrine, and that is simply to prevent sticking. You don't want to pull out your uh, aluminum foil at the very end and have a huge chunk of your terrine come with it. That would be no good. If you have covered ramekins, you can just use those too. Sometimes ramekins will come with little co covers, especially the ones that are made for making custard. Because custards you typically cover, although not always. All right, one, two, three, four, five, six. I am going to go ahead and pretend like I planned uh, making six terrines at the very beginning because six ramekins are what fit into my roasting pan. So I'm just going to pretend that I planned that and that the extra ramekins that I have out in butter were in no way, shape, or form actually ever intended to go in the oven because then I would have had to find another pot to put, put, so, put those in. So I definitely planned to do six from the very beginning. I can just go back and edit out all the stuff where I talked about doing eight, and uh, you would never know. You would just be like, man, that guy, he's always so dead on with his measurements. Editing is a powerful thing. I mean, in theory, I could just be doing this and then adding sound effects later, but I have enough witnesses who've actually done the show with me now at this point to where that's not happening. It would actually be much more difficult to, <laughs> to do this by talking and then layering in sound effects on top of it because... Cooking is a pretty sound intensive process and it'd be really easy to forget something, you know, like I wouldn't necessarily think, oh, I need to make sure I have like six different kinds of aluminum foil, Russell. You would just be listening and you'd be like, wait a minute, all this aluminum foil sounds the same. No sound effects on this show other than what occur in a kitchen or in nature, if it happens to be a episode where we're outside, not outside in this one though. There's a sound effect that matters. Kettle is on the boil. Gonna go ahead and fill my water bath. It's just enough water to come up to right about, yeah, about a third, which is what we want. And into the oven, they go. And I will check on them in a, about an hour, and hopefully they'll be about ready by then. Might take an hour and a half. You never know. You never know. That's what thermometers are for. Okay, we are done. About an hour later. Well, we're partway done. They still have to cool off, but they are plenty finished. So I'm popping them out of their water bath. And now, carefully, because they're still really hot, unwrap them. Be 
because I don't want the steam inside right now to just condense on the top. Oh, and they're lovely. They've puffed up nicely. They're very pretty. What I'm gonna have to do now for when I'm chilling them is weight them down. But they've pulled away from the sides of the ramekins, so they're not they're not stuck, which is good because we do want to unmold these later. But you do have the option not to unmold them, in which case what you would do is make yourself a little aspic out of, could be anything. What I would probably choose in this case would be a little bit of Riesling. Mix a little Riesling with a little Jello, or <laughs> not Jello, but gelatin, unflavored gelatin. After you've pressed it and chilled it, then you would cover the top of it uh, with the gelatin and let that set up. You can also do that when you unmold it as well. If you if you decide to unmold these, which is what I'm planning on doing tomorrow, um, although maybe I'll... Now I'm thinking about it, and they look kind of attractive in their little ramekins. Maybe I'll leave them in their ramekins. In which case, uh, I will definitely cover them with a little bit of aspic. It doesn't need much, just a little, a little small layer. Just to cover it, makes everything look nice and shiny. Fills around the edges where the uh, terrine is pulled away from the sides of the ramekin. Just fills around, makes everything look a little nicer. Makes things look a little shiny, a little nice. You can also, you could lay, say, a parsley leaf on top of it or an artfully cut piece of green onion or something like that uh, on top and then pour the aspic over that so you, you've got a visual garnish beneath the aspic layer. So that's what I'm going to do. And aspic is, you know, we all make jokes about it these days, but done right, it's really nice looking and it's really, it tastes good. It, it gives, it, it. it's like a, basically what it is, is a is a sauce that's made into a solid. But when you put it in your mouth, it dissolves in your mouth and it coats your mouth in a really uh, delicious way. So aspic really should make a little bit of a comeback. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to do the, the jello mold thing with like random vegetables floating around in aspic. That can stay where it stays. But I happen to think that a tastefully done aspic is not a bad thing. And just gonna, now that we've sort of evaporated most of the steam off of these, at least initially, now I'm just gonna stack them on top of each other to weight them down with a piece of foil between them, obviously. And this is just to compress them a little bit as they cool, because as they cool, they're naturally gonna shrink down a little bit anyway. And if we just uh, help that process, then it gives them a little bit of a nicer shape at the end. In this case, I'm, I've got two in a stack, and then we'll just put in a cup, just a coffee cup on top of each one. And I'm gonna fill the coffee cups with a little bit of water, and those are the ones sitting on the top of the stack. It doesn't take a huge amount of weight here. We're just giving it just a little bit of weight on top so that everything will come out just a little nicely compressed at the end. So now I just wait, basically overnight. Tomorrow, I will pour the aspic. You, all you gotta do is Mix it exactly as you would for gelatin, um, whatever it says on the gelatin packet, whichever, if you happen to be using sheet gelatin or uh, powder gelatin or whatever, mix, uh, mix the gelatin in, heat it up, bring it to a boil. Once it gets to a boil, it's ready to go. Make sure it's, real, it's dissolved, and then you just pour it inside the uh, ramekins and serve it right out of the ramekins. And it will be delicious and tasty, and everybody will think you're awesome, even though it really doesn't take 
that much time at all to put these things together. Shrimp terrines. It's just a little out of the ordinary, but it should be well within the ordinary. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quator Ebane. This is the sixth episode of the winter 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this. Thank you.